welcome to the second episode of the How to Become a Psilocybin Facilitator podcast. Today, we're going to be speaking with Jeanette Small, who is one of the first psilocybin facilitators in Oregon. She came through the Changer Institute and she set up the organization Lucid Cradle. So without further ado, let's hear from Jeanette. Hello, and welcome back, my curious and adventurous listeners, to another episode of How to Become a Psychedelic Facilitator. My name is James Bunn, and for want of a better word, I'll be your guide on this educational journey. And I'm thrilled to have you join me for our second installment in this series, in which I'm here to help you to become a psilocybin facilitator in the beautiful state of Oregon. I'm sure many of you have listened to our first episode, because it'd be quite strange for you to start on episode two, but nonetheless, where we spoke with the founder of the Changa Institute, Lisa Ginsberg. So today, we're going even deeper as we embark on this extraordinary quest to become a skilled facilitator. Now, you might be wondering what exactly does it mean to be a facilitator, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But just very broadly, it's they need to be an experienced and compassionate guide who creates a safe and supportive environment for individuals seeking any sort of profound psychedelic experience. But I'm with one of those facilitators today and we'll be interviewing her. And her name is Jeanette Small. And Jeanette, do you mind if I quickly pass over to you for you to introduce yourself to the audience, please? Thank you so much for having me on, James. I really appreciate it. So my name is Jeanette Small. I have earned a PhD in clinical psychology with emphasis in somatic psychology in 2010 at the Santa Barbara Graduate Institute. And since then, I've been working with populations that are easily described as people going through a crisis situation. So I've worked in psychiatry, mostly specializing in helping folks who are trying to quit opioids. I have worked with teenagers who have just been recently detained for a number of reasons, whether it is their own criminal activity or the activity of their parents. I used to run a residential facility working with youth and specializing in reunification with their parents. So I have a lot of experience in various systems, you know, trying to provide assistance to folks going through all kinds of altered states. Now, usually not the kind of altered states that people would desire to have. Now, by education, as I've mentioned, since I specialized in somatic psychology, that approach really speaks to depth work. So I have learned quite a few skills in facilitating an access to an altered state that is maybe more desirable. And so here we are at this intersection of, you know, legal possibility for me to combine some of the things that I have learned and have pursued in my personal experience. So sort of seeking altered states in order to facilitate personal growth and to increase flow states in, you know, the personal life experience. And also having worked with people in altered states that are not as desirable, that are really crisis. So here I have this unique opportunity to combine some of the lived experience and skills that I have accrued and bring them into this new framework. And I am so excited to be part of this revolution. That's amazing. And, and thank you, Jeanette, for that introduction. I guess where I'd be interested to start today's episode is sort of going back to something you mentioned just there, which is this idea of a slightly more intentional or pleasurable, maybe pleasurable is the wrong word, altered state. And the altered state which people that you were previously working with found themselves in. I, whenever 
us from the legal world come in here about altered state, we always think obviously about drug induced altered states. But I guess, could you explain to the audience a little bit about what these non-drug induced altered states are and, and the position that some of your former clients were in before you went into psychedelic facilitation? Absolutely. So as you've mentioned, yes, usually when we think of an altered state, we credit that experience to some type of substance. So it is something exogenous that came in and change the way that we are. But in fact, in reality, when we consider our normative functioning, our normal kind of consensual reality state, we're talking about a functional presence. So that means that our brains are performing in a way that is expected. That means they will process information a certain way and produce a certain predictable result. They will inform us hey, this is a safe situation or this is not a safe situation. In a safe situation, I act as as such. In a not safe situation, I act differently. We can absolutely be knocked off of this normative functioning through all kinds of experiences. We can be entering an altered state that is determined by our experience of everything being incredibly unsafe. So if we're going through a crisis experience where our physical or emotional or spiritual safety is threatened, we are immediately pushed into an altered state. And everything, all the information that comes into our minds is already filtered through that safety-seeking behavior. We're already experiencing our environment, not in quite the same way as other folks would be, or even as we ourselves would be if we were not in the moment in a threatened position. So in some ways, a drug-induced altered state very much resembles sort of out of the ordinary experiences of our non-drug state lives. Quite often, drug abuse really stems from that, where we experience an altered state and we say, you know what, this altered state feels a little bit better. I'm going to escape into this alternate reality. I think that the negotiation between being in what we would consider in our normative self, functional, and visiting other ways of being in the world, perceiving ourselves in the world, you know, I think that those transitions have a deeply meaningful spiritual psychosocial component to them. And there's quite a bit of overlap that I believe our literature does not necessarily reflect right now when we're looking at the research that is coming out. There's kind of a hard divide between, you know, the desirable altered states and not desirable altered states. There's this sort of morality that is imposed upon it that I believe is not needed. I think that experiencing yourself in an altered state is deeply meaningful and can be an opportunity for learning in whatever uh, way that we enter that altered state. Yeah, and I think that this is a, a point that I can't lament on too long, but I would like to quickly weigh in a little bit myself here, which is that Again, whenever we think of altered states, usually the first thought is is drug-induced. But there's a a fantastic researcher from the UK called Dr. David Luke, who I really recommend everyone that's listening to the show check out. I'll put some links in the show notes for everyone to see that he deals with altered states, again, non-drug-induced, but lots of them are to do with sort of meditation-induced. And again, lots of them with an idea of having a positive reaction from being in that altered state or a different way of thinking or of approaching a situation. Again, really to reiterate, your, the altered states you're talking about are primarily negative, or they've been in a 
position where they're not able to think in a way that they might usually do so. What sort of backgrounds were some of those clients coming from that you had in your in that previous life? I mean, I guess it was quite broad, was it not? I mean, most of the folks that I have worked with come from a lot of traumatic experiences. And so these altered states have become sort of places where they escape to. They're maybe fantasy worlds, and those fantasy worlds are not always favorable. They're not always as useful to the person as they wish that they were. So I see an opportunity in connecting that feeling, that familiar feeling for someone with a lot of trauma experience in being in an altered state, in perceiving the world just a little bit differently, but giving them a greater opportunity to experience this altered state in a more positive light as an opportunity for growth. In a lot of ways, you know, the experience of a panic attack, which is not a desirable altered state, is not substantially different in its felt sense from a lot of the breath work as we're familiar with from Stanislav Grof's work. There's a lot of this activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. There's a lot of flushing. There's a lot of release of cortisol that, you know, really elevates our felt experience. So being able to allow the client who comes from quite a bit of trauma history to enter the state that they're familiar with, an altered state where their heart is elevated, their breath is a little bit faster than they are comfortable with, and then guiding them through that space, not necessarily through the cognitive plane, through the rational engagement, but through the felt sense, seeing that within that altered state, there is an opportunity for a pivot, for a different experience of that lived sensation that this elevated breath can also be fruitful soil. This can be an opportunity for growth, for healing, for reorganization, for asserting our own boundaries that are healthy and, you know, really useful for functioning in the world. So, yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I really think that there's a good chance this episode might be tied to the altered states, but we'll see about it when we come around to the edit. No, this is great. And it does really feel like the trauma-informed care, the, the trauma perspective that you're coming from, or at least came from in the background, probably really helped with your education in, in terms of becoming a psilocybin facilitator. Now, I mentioned a little bit in the, the lead up to this episode about just kind of talking about what that is. And, and, you know, hopefully a lot of our audience will be aware, but a psilocybin facilitator in Oregon, is that something specific? Is that something, that, you know, that is a defined role? How, how does it work? Well, that's actually really tricky. So um, there's a little bit of confusion about what it means to be a licensed facilitator in Oregon. We often talk about psilocybin being used for therapeutic purposes. There's a bit of a promise of it being, you know, the next wonderful modality to address PTSD, um, treatment resistance, anxiety, and depression. All of those things are indeed possible. However, the legalization model is not a therapeutic one. What we have legalized right now is an adult use model. So clients do not have to have a diagnosis. They do not have to get a referral. And facilitators are not required to be trained clinicians or have experience in the therapeutic realm. In fact, we are dissuaded from utilizing uh, licenses that we have earned in other areas of life, such as, you know, psychotherapy practice, while we're working with our clients providing psilocybin services. 
we are encouraged to be non-directive presence and make sure that the client has a safe experience. But the therapeutic component is, you know, it's difficult to articulate the way that the law is written, the way that our regulation has permitted it. No, and I, I coming from a legal background myself, I'm acutely aware to this as a, an ongoing issue and something that's probably going to become more fleshed out as we, we go forward in the next couple of years. And Oregon have very much set themselves apart from the rest in terms of being a trendsetter. I mean, historically, obviously, but also now so in the psilocybin space. And I just want to kind of put a little bit more back to you and, and your role within what you were doing here and, and how you even came about it, because it's not very usual, that's to say the least. I don't think this is something that when you're in school, you think, okay, one day I'm going to be a, a psilocybin facilitator. It's usually, at least from my experience, everyone comes to this from a different angle. And I guess I'm curious about how you went from going to, you know, very much working within groups with high amounts of trauma, seeing them in these altered states, which is a term now I'm not going to be able to get out of my head. And so seeing that as, okay, this is something that I am enjoying doing, but there's another way, there's a route to go down that is this psilocybin or, you know, whatever psychedelic it might be. Can you kind of tell the audience a little bit about what, how, how that even happened for you? I mean, how that transition happened? Was it easy? Where did you go to find out information? All this sort of stuff is what they'll be really interested to hear. Absolutely. Well, for that, I guess I should tell you a little bit more about my own personal history. So I was born in Moldova, which is an Eastern European country. It is the Western neighbor to Ukraine. When I was born, it was still the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, I was nine years old. My family, German Jewish family, who has been displaced through the previous, you know, military engagements. My grandparents were in the camps through World War II. So our family once again was displaced. And at 10 years old, I was an asylum seeker along with my mom and my younger brother. We ended up being in Germany and I lived there until I was 17 years old and then came to the United States. So I have a fair amount of personal trauma history and transgenerational injuries, let's say. I carry quite a bit of trauma and I have gone through all kinds of therapies, you know, going through school, becoming a therapist myself. There's quite a few, you know, requirements in terms of what we have to do to tend to our own personal wounds so that we're able to provide the best care for our clients. In my own healing journey, I came in contact with psychedelics. And for me personally, psychedelics are not interchangeable. I did not find the various substances that I have come in contact with to all be equally beneficial for me. For me, psilocybin was truly a very special substance. It was one that allowed for me to enter psycho-spiritual spaces that otherwise were incredibly guarded. And even after many years of psychotherapeutic work with skilled and incredibly trained clinicians, I mean, I did three years of Jungian analysis alone. And still there were places that were just so deeply wounded for me that accessing them through the conventional talk therapy methods was not possible. I really did need to be in an altered state in order to allow myself to kind of lower that guard and to become vulnerable enough to tend to, to the wounding, to be able to allow for reparative experiences to occur. So I personally have utilized 
psilocybin for healing my own personal wounds through the years. And now, you know, now that this opportunity is coming about, I absolutely want to find a way to make this possible for other people as well, for folks who maybe are really well functioning, who, you know, are strong and committed to, you know, doing a good job in their daily life. And yet at the same time, carry on so much trauma in the background that does not need to be there. It can be resolved. So this is what brought me to this place in particular. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, it's really reassuring to hear in a sense as well, because I mean, again, I want to draw our attention back to something you mentioned there about getting the assistance of some whatever it might be to, in order to get into the space in which you can address some of these traumas in the past. I know that it's very hard to sometimes get there through more traditional methods. I mean, I myself have tried, you know, things like talk therapy and meditation, breath work and everything that people within this space tell me you need to do this. And if you do this, then you can, you can get to this and you'll be able to address this trauma or whatever it might be. And it just never worked. And I guess I kind of initially saw it as, okay, well then something's wrong with me. I can't do shadow work properly or I can't do meditation properly and very much took it on myself. But with some of this, I guess, psychotherapeutic help, let's say, that I've been able to go to those spaces and, and have those conversations. And I think this is a story that happens more often than people might believe. And is it sometimes where some of the confusion comes from, from people that don't know this, this area of work about the utility of something like psilocybin and how it might be used. I guess what I'd be curious to know is, is what do you think, and, and this is purely an opinion-based thing, this, I don't know if there's a right answer to this yet, is what do you think that a client that is looking to partake in psilocybin um, facilitation, um, do you think they should try other modalities first? Do you think they should have gone, let's say, through a course of, you know, therapy or just talk therapy before they go into this? Or do you think that's not relevant and that they could be very able to do this without trying those previous modalities? I think that there are no prerequisites. You know, you really do not need to have had a certain amount of work done, have exhausted other modalities and have found that this doesn't work for you. I think that the more deciding factor in whether a client is a good fit for psilocybin work is the level of their courage in exploring what is actually true to them. Quite often, we might not want to know what is true to us because we're holding on to certain constructs because they work well enough in our lives. Maybe we're attached to a certain, let's say, persona or a mask that we're generally appearing with in our daily lives. If that is where the person is at, they might not be ready to go for a psilocybin experience. But if if the person is ready, if the person is ready to explore what is true for them, what is, you know, unsaid in their own internal psychological space, then they're ready. They're ready to come as they are without having done any other work before that. Yeah, that's really useful. And, and thank you for sharing that, um, Janez. It sounds like that it really comes from a place of it's not what you, what checkboxes you've ticked along the way. It's more of the mindset that you have going into this and the intention you're putting into that, the reason for going in, in a sense. So I guess we should take actually a step back here. So I've, I've jumped a little bit forward there to, you know, talking about your 
future practice, which we'll, we'll very much get into near the end here. But to get there, you had to go through to get facil- that license to become a facilitator. And I might be wrong in saying this. I think I'm right in saying that you were part of the first cohort in Oregon in order to, to achieve this. So firstly, congratulations. Bit bit late, but congratulations for me to thank you for doing that. But secondly, what, what was it like sort of being fast-tracked through this, this program? I mean, it must be a bit of a whirlwind tour for you. Thank you so much. Yes, I was one of the very first, and I was one of the very first to receive my license, which is hugely exciting. At the same time, I mean, we're trailblazing. So the curriculum had to be kind of tested on us to some extent. There's a little bit of participation back. You know, our feedback, I believe, did also give valuable information to the school that we attended. So there was a little bit more maybe expected from our cohort than from the folks who are going to be following our footsteps. Then being licensed, you know, right at the start, again, is really exciting. And I got quite a bit of attention. Uh, I got some media attention. I got a lot of attention from folks whom I do not know, <laughs> who've reached out to express their feelings. And through this experience, I've learned that being one of the first, we get to also be a little bit of a lightning rod for people's fears and feelings and expectations. There's been quite a bit of communication that I have received about what people really want this program to be, what they want psilocybin to become, how they want spirituality to play a role or not play a role. People have strong feelings about whether education is good or actually harmful in providing services using psilocybin. So that has been a little bit of an unexpected facet. Now thinking back on it, perhaps I should have expected it a little bit more. (laughs) But still, you know, the school was rigorous. We did have to, to learn quite a bit. But again, as I've shared, I have quite a bit of school already under my belt. I came into it with quite a bit of knowledge, and I've already read most of the books that we were supposed to read. So I feel like in that way, I had a leg up in that I didn't have to work quite so hard to achieve the academic success. But again, the the emotional component that came with it in being the trailblazer for an industry, it's been a lot, I have to say. No, I, my heart does go out to you there. And I mean, to be a, someone that's a bit of a trendsetter, you are going to face those sorts of things. So I guess you, unfortunately, this is something you've signed up for, but it's uh, you're going through it now. And from what I can see very well, and there was a point there you brought up about the sort of reading that goes on behind this. And, and one of the questions that we do get quite a lot, actually, is about about book recommendations. There's, you know, everyone seems to have a book about psychedelics out at the moment, from your Michael Pollans to your David Nutt, the whole wide range. And, and they kind of go from issues of spirituality to spirit, um, like lots of hard science and therapeutic practice in between and, and ethics and everything, really. And I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but I'm sure that the audience would love a book recommendation about where you think is a really important thing for someone to read who's looking to enter this space. <sighs> You know, there's so many books. Honestly, I think I might have to supply a list of books that I think folks need to be reading. We'll put them in the show notes for everyone. Don't worry. (laughs) Here's one that I like to keep by my side. It is uh, written by James Fadman, and it's The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. It may not be the newest book, and it is actually written about LSD, not so much about psilocybin. However, I really like his tone. I really like the way that Dr. Fetterman is able to bridge the psycho-spiritual piece with, you know, the hard sciences, 
in neuroscience. I think the tone is really wonderful and is really accessible. So if you're just looking for one book that you would like to read to kind of get an idea, I would really like to recommend this one. Now, of course, I studied psychology, so I have quite a few of my deaf psychology friends that I would like to recommend. And I think everyone should be reading Carl Jung. I know that Jung may have been a little bit wordy at times and may have gone on and on about constructs that perhaps not everybody will find useful. However, there is a wealth of information about utilizing sort of that altered state space. He described it in all kinds of different ways, whether it is the collective unconscious or, you know, our memories from previous lifetimes and ancestry. I think there's just so much wealth that people can get from that. So absolutely, please do read Dr. Jung as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely put some recommendations. And if you think of any before this episode goes out, we'll put them in too. And I'm just avoiding the chance now that you've mentioned Arthur States again to go back to it. So we, we are going to move on on there as well. So the next one, I, I guess, that I really want to touch on is, is something that is very novel. And this will be maybe second episode to go out for this podcast. And really the first chance for a lot of the audience to hear from someone who's able to and uh, license to provide this now what that transition to being a, someone who's training in it to, to actually delivering that service. And you've spoken a little bit about sort of like the online feedback that you've got and the wide range, let's say, in which that feedback comes in. And, and I'm sure lots of people love to express their opinions to you, very frankly. But I guess, I mean, less more about sort of like the public reaction, more about what it means practically for you, Jeanette. Has it been quite a big life change for you in this? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in order to start the business. I've had to leverage quite a bit. I had to leverage my own personal assets. I'm trying to learn how to do a business within the federally legal space, which is tricky. There are a lot of unexpected, not just expenses, but just hurdles that I have to consider. I really care to make sure to provide a template for best possible services. I really want to come up with best practices. And I'm sure I'm not unique in that. I'm confident that most people starting out the service provision really want to make sure to do the best job possible. It is difficult. It is difficult because our legal framework is a little bit ambiguous and we have so much leeway and so much freedom but at the same time, that means that we have to just figure it out. What does that mean? How do we reconcile some of the expectations placed on us with the expectations that we place on ourselves, the things that we want to offer to the world? So that has been quite a, a bit, you know, it's a difficult transition. I'm hopeful, of course, since I continue on this path, I'm hopeful that this is going to result in, you know, wonderful opportunities, not just for myself and my family, but for my community and, you know, the community of just human beings learning from this and being able to grow. I am right now in the process of building out my service center. So there's renovations happening. I have furniture that is coming in. I'm trying to put together a milieu that I find to be worthwhile, that from experience, I've, you know, I've seen that to be the best support for people to go through an intense experience and really accessing some of their internal parts. I am reaching out to researchers and clinicians who are working in the field and trying to bring together a collaborative whole so that we can share our observations and we can help each other in developing those modalities that will be best for, you know, our clients moving forward. 
Yeah, no, that, that's fascinating because, I mean, there's a, a question on my mind that I don't know if you would have necessarily guessed the way this conversation will now go. But how does one go about furnishing a psychedelic space? Because <laughs> many, lots of people talk about the therapy in this space and the different, as you mentioned, modalities to go by. But also a big part of the uh, what was mentioned on the previous episode with Lisa was set and setting. And setting is, is half of that. The setting in which someone does this, I mean, a lot of times in the past, obviously, people will have done this in a setting in which they feel comfortable, you know, their own home, around friends, or maybe a setting that they don't feel that comfortable, like a nightclub or, a, or things like that. Again, talking historically. But when you have to think, you look at a, a white canvas and you're like, okay, I've got this space that I can work with. I'm going to furnish it. Are you looking, you know, oh, I'll get a Scandinavian Ikea style in, or there needs to be a rug here, or let's go outside in this part with some potted plants. Can you walk me through a little bit of the process there about how you furnish a psychedelic space? Oh my, thank you so much for asking. <laughs> well, you may or may not know this, but there's quite a bit of discussion in the therapeutic space about the quality of milieu. And quite a few people are actually publishing and speaking publicly about the importance of how you actually furnish a space and people have very strong opinions on it. And here's my opportunity to test some of my personal assumptions. <laughs> so for example, one of my professors from graduate school, Stan Tatkin, he writes quite a bit about the milieu and the importance of how to place chairs. I mean, he even outlines the angle at which the chairs have to be placed in the room for the best outcomes when working with a couple going through couples therapy. So I'm not alone in finding all kinds of peculiar, you know, things to be quite important, but this is what's important for me. I am looking to create different spaces for a person to be able to engage with their environment or disengage with their environment as they see fit. Because I come from a space where, you know, I work with folks with a lot of trauma, it is really important for me that their boundaries are respected when they feel resistance, that that is respected. The MAPS protocol, for example, calls for a very specific and prescribed milieu where the client is encouraged to turn inwards. So they're supposed to be lying down, reclining, sitting, either way, staying kind of still in one place with their eyes closed and with headphones. I have found that to be really problematic, especially because you know, folks who have quite a bit of trauma history do not tend to like having their eyes closed in a compulsive kind of way where this is just, you know, a requirement. So I am going to create a calm space with a really comfortable bed where a person can feel sort of like they're in a womb or in a cradle where they're really comfortable. Everything is going to be let's say in pastel colors, for lack of better words, just really relaxing. That is going to be a perfect space, in my opinion, if you want to turn inwards, if you want to disengage from the environment. However, I think that sometimes, especially in a longer journey of six to eight hours, we don't want to just stay inwards. There are moments when we need the stimulation from the outside. And so for that, I would like to create a space with sensory stimulation opportunities. So I am bringing in rugs from Morocco. I myself, as I've mentioned, grew up not here and we used to have rugs on our walls. We had Persian rugs everywhere. This is just part of you know the way that I grew up. And so I would like to bring a little bit of that into my space. I want more vibrant colors, more textures, things that 
can be exciting and can allow for a person to trigger certain memories, to have things come up through this interaction with their environment. So I'm putting together a lot of different spaces. I'm also an artist by trade. I hadn't mentioned this before, given how this is perhaps not the most relevant aspect of, of my work here. But I'm also putting together special artwork that is going to be going into that center that is going to mimic some of the layers of colors. I want to bring in certain hues, certain textures. So I'm really excited about all that. <laughs> I'm really excited about it too. You know, so it's mentioned a lot, but unfortunately in the UK, we still don't hear too much about that side of the, the importance of the space in which we're doing it. And it's often overlooked. And, and I really feel like there's missing a trick here because even in, I'm a big fan of uh, the work of Aldous Huxley. And in his seminal books, he does write about, you know, the creases in his trousers being a fundamental part of his psychedelic or mescaline based experience. And that to be that takeaway of like, wait, you went through all of that and it was the creases in your trousers that is memorable. There must be something there. And I find that in this, the clinical structure or the scientific structure that we, again, in the UK, we usually have to work in. It means that we don't get to explore these these various elements. It's just you stick to what the clinical protocol is because it's the safe way to do it. You do it in a clinical space, very clean. Again, lots of spaces are doing actually some more interesting things now with sort of like flowers and salt lamps, but it's still quite constrained. And really an exciting thing about the, again, for want of a better word, the Oregon experiment is to see all these various ways in which this, this is going to be delivered to clients and take what's good and leave what isn't. You know, then there's definitely a learning curve to be had there. So thank you for, for sharing all that. And I, I really am conscious of time and, and how much time I've taken up with you. But one of the other things I really wanted to ask you about, which is a very hard topic, I think, to try and address is you mentioned it again in a previous part, which is a bit about handling an expectation of a client and maybe not even a client, maybe the, the general audience. I mean, people will have seen news articles are going out about this. I'm pretty sure psychedelics came up recently in the Wall Street Journal and like all about the Denver conference and they've seen, they've read Michael Pollan or they've seen all these documentaries, all this sort of stuff. They'll come to this experience perhaps, you know, without any prior experience and, and want to better themselves or to heal something. And they might not get that, you know, and in their first time going to one of these spaces and, and feel a little bit like they've been lied to or, or missold and i'm kind of curious to hear from it from uh, someone that's actually delivering this at the front end of the, or the coal face of this which is is how how do you handle someone's expectations coming on board to do one of these experiences at your new center absolutely it is really important to talk about kind of the worst case scenario in advance and i think when when we first mention the worst case scenario we tend to go to physical distress or an unpleasant experience. But to me, the bad trip is really a disappointing one, one where the person was not able to get to the intensity or the cathartic experience that they were seeking or something magical. And so this is really important to address right from the start before any commitment is made between the facilitator and the client. I tend to mention right from the start that the client has to be willing to go on the journey that they're going to experience. If they're seeking something in particular, they need to be ready for the possibility that that specific thing is not going to manifest. So I've had one person reach out and mention, I would like to meet with my ancestors. I have some transgenerational strife that needs to be addressed before I pass on. And I've just been diagnosed with a terminal disease. So I really need to speak with my great grandmother. So we had to have a conversation about the fact that that might not happen. And in fact, 
perhaps their journey might not be as deep as they would like for it to be. If the client is not willing to accept that as a possibility, then I personally would not choose to work with them because we do need to be open to whatever comes up. And sometimes what comes up is resistance where the body says, yes, there is some wisdom or there is some wealth or there is some trauma back here but I'm not ready to deal with that. And I'm not ready to go there. That is also a therapeutic opportunity. That is also a message. A no from our mind's perspective is also a valuable feedback. And so the client really needs to understand that that is also a possibility. And yeah, I think that needs to be talked about before any work happens. No, totally. And, and relaying that message to the client is going to be a very difficult part to do, but it's all part of what we were speaking about earlier, right? It's not the... It's the mindset that client's going into the experience with. And if it's like, it's to do this specific thing, and if it doesn't do this, then it's failed, they're probably not going to get that much benefit from it anyway. So if anything, you're, you're helping them out there and really trying to warn them about the stuff they need to be aware of. So this has been fantastic, Jeanette, and I really appreciate this. I guess lastly, just, I mean, I'll put a link in the show notes, but how do people find you? Well, I would like for you all to visit my website for my service center. It is lucidcradle.com. And I look forward to hearing from all y'all who are interested in connecting. Thank you. No, that's great. And thank you very much, Jeanette. That's another episode of the show. And, and thank you very much for tuning in, everyone. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks from now. And we'll be bringing you more news about how to become a psychedelic facilitator. Thank you very much for listening. And have a lovely afternoon. Bye-bye. If you are interested in becoming a psilocybin facilitator yourself, then please check out the website at www.changerinstitute.com.